We're in Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to read here from the ESV. And we're going to go ahead and read this whole section together. Uh, you don't have to read out loud. But uh, why don't you stand as we read God's word this morning, if you're able. It says in verse 15, and you'll notice that probably most of the headings above the scripture in your Bible say justified by faith. And it says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17. But if in, any, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though I, the law, I, excuse me, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might be able to live to God. And I have been crucified with Christ. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So last week, we looked at the first part of chapter two, and uh, we saw kind of a, a bit of a brutal section of scripture where Paul rebukes Peter, and he calls out Peter for the things that Peter's been doing, and you know, we went over that last week, and this idea that really Peter was setting a precedent that there was still division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, really, I think all of us can relate to Peter. Uh, Peter made a lot of mistakes. I love Peter, because I feel like Peter. Uh, you know, Peter was really zealous. I've been accused of being overzealous sometimes. It's okay. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed. You can laugh. And, uh, you know, Peter was the guy that was, like, ready to throw down at any moment. He was probably a big, burly guy. You know, I don't know what Peter looked like exactly, but I would imagine he was probably, like, really strong and burly. He probably had a really nice, well-maintained beard. Or maybe it wasn't well-maintained, and that made him more manly. I think of Peter like Aquaman. That's what I vision when I, when I think of Peter. Maybe not as ripped, because the steroids weren't around yet, but, and CGI. But I, I, I see Peter as he's full of zeal, and passion for the things of Christ. But he's kind of dumb sometimes too, which is again why I can relate to Peter. And Paul calls him out because he loves him and because he has passion that the truth of the gospel would be properly represented. And I wonder, in our culture today, how many people are willing to risk a friendship for the sake of the gospel? How many people are willing to be the bad guy and to stand up and say something for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In other countries, people are doing it where their life is at risk. And sometimes I look at our culture in America and I look at the worst case scenario right now Maybe you lose your job. But that's probably pretty far-fetched 
most of the time because it's probably most of the time just a disgruntled other employee or at the water cooler, you're the guy that everybody talks about. Yeah, you know, Holy Joe. But what is the real risk? Because Paul, as well as all the other disciples, took great risks for the sake of preserving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were not ashamed of the gospel. And I think there's power in that passage of rebuke because I know I can speak from experience that I know the people who love me the most in my life who are close to me, and I think you have to have a relationship with somebody when you rebuke them most of the time. I think that that's the healthiest way. But I know that the people in my life who I have relationships with, the ones who love me the most are the ones who are willing to tell me the things I don't want to hear. And Paul did that for his brother. And that's not even our passage of scripture this morning, but I think that it's important that we look at that and we look at the action that Paul took and we say, hmm, okay. So when the truth of the gospel is at stake, maybe it's time to speak up. You know, in verse 14, Paul says, in chapter 2, 214, this is right where we're about to start, he says, Paul says that they were not acting in line with the gospel. How many times have we not acted in line with the gospel? And I, I would pray that we have people around us in our life that would say something to us if we're out of line. Because we need accountability. Amen? Amen? And I think a big theme from last week as well was not to act hypocritically and to be authentic. It was a great message last week. And so as we dive in to verse 15, the first verse, let's read 15 and 16 again. It says, you and I are Jews. I'm going to read from the NLT now. I'll give you a little different taste here. It says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of the, our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So the first thing that you'll probably notice when you read verse 15 is Paul's calling the Gentiles all sinners. So, yeah, like we read that and we're like, well, that's kind of rude. You know, and you're like, Aren't, aren't all men sinners? So just for the sake of clarification, Paul is speaking to the law that the Jews are under versus the lack of law that the Gentiles are under. And so he's referring to, Jew, he's talking to Jews as a Jew and he's saying, hey, you guys know that we have this law from our fathers and from God our Father and the Gentiles don't have that law. And so he's speaking to the difference in culture because as you know in this time, there's heavy, heavy uh, racism and prejudice between the Jew and the Gentile, right? And so history shows us that these people did not like each other. And that's really the whole issue that presented itself in the beginning of the chapter is that there was division, though there shouldn't have been division. Because it's not about your race or where you come from. Freedom in Christ is to every man who would call on the name of Jesus, and so the divide needs to be eliminated. And I don't have time to touch on racism this morning, but I will tell you without hesitation that if you have prejudices this morning against somebody of a different race, shame on you. And if you were raised that way, I apologize. But shake it, move on, because it's not the heart of Jesus Christ. 
And I know that racism is oftentimes brought up in the family, and it's taught, but it is a terrible thing. And the, I'll tell you that the white Jesus that we see at Christmas is not an accurate depiction. Jesus don't look like me, people. Okay? So we need, to, we need to get rid of our prejudices, and that is a biblical thing that we can even see a little bit right here in this text. And so Paul says, hey, I know that we have our differences. And then what does he say in verse 16? Yet, or but... We know that a person is not made right with God or justified by following the law. So what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that the Gentiles have equal opportunity for salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you're not Jewish this morning, that should excite you. I'm not Jewish. That excites me. I'm glad that I have an opportunity to be saved by the grace of my Savior and that my race is irrelevant. And so there's this prejudice here in the culture, and Paul is saying, but that's not, your Jewish heritage doesn't save you. What saves you is the blood of Jesus. And it goes on to say, it's by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying a set of rules, by obeying the law. It can't be any more clear than that right there. Paul makes it black and white, clear as day, that you cannot be saved by following a set of rules. It is impossible to be saved through following rules. In the original language, 15 and 16, you know, they're split in our our, uh, translations here, but that's one thought from Paul. It's a continuous thought, 15 and 16. He's saying we cannot be saved by our works, by following a set of rules. So I talked about words in the church that we use. One of the words that we use a lot is justified. Simply put, justified is to be be declared righteous, to be declared innocent, you could say. And condemnation is the opposite of uh, justification. It's to be declared guilty, to not be innocent. Everybody with me? Okay? So justification means we've been declared innocent. We've been declared righteous. And the thing that hits me about that definition is that it's being declared. So somebody has to be declaring it. Yeah? (laughs) There's a popular TV show and there's a a moment where he's in financial trouble and (laughs) uh, one of his coworkers gives him advice and says, well, you just need to declare bankruptcy. And he gives him terrible advice. He says, declare bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is nature's do-over. <laughs> and another guy who's an accountant says, no, no, that's not, no, that's not true. And so the guy just goes into the middle of the cubicles in the office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. And he goes in his office and he thinks he's all good. He's cutting up his cards and the accountant comes in and says, hey, I just wanted to let you know that you can't just say the word bankruptcy. And he's like, I didn't say it, I declared it. <laughs> Has nothing to do with this, but it is funny. That's a bit from The Office, if you've seen that show. Steve Carell is one of my favorites, he's hilarious. Uh, so there's this idea, though, that it's been declared over your life. And as you know, this morning I pray that the, de- the declaration is from God our Father. 
the ultimate judge, who has said, if you call on the name of Jesus Christ, my son, you are declared righteous and holy. Christianity is not complicated. It's not. And sometimes I think we complicate it. And so we've been justified, not condemned. You know, some people have this idea of justification that it's, it's like the judge, if you picture a courtroom, the judge, you know, how many of you guys watch like daytime TV and you watch these terrible shows where it's obviously all staged? How many people are suing their neighbor because their dog bit their cousin's son? Like it can't happen 90 times, right? And <laughs> there they are, like it's just happening again or, you know, he bought the car and she gave him 2000 and then he wanted 3000 but then the papers are all skewed and these cases are always ridiculous. These are the shows I end up watching when I'm like sick at home. That's the only time that I watch these. It's like they're on and it's like nothing else is on and you're like, it's slightly entertaining, <laughs> you know, and a little bit comical. Yeah, I did roast Hallmark a little bit last night, but I'm sorry. Some of you were really offended by that. And so we have this idea of justification that it's like this. The judge has all these cases, and so you come to the stand, and he says, okay, justified. Next. But that's not our relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, justified. Now let me walk you through this process. And I will never leave you and never forsake you. And when you make a mistake, the seal that I've stamped over your life of being innocent and set apart and justified doesn't go away. That's salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not based on my merit. It's not based on how good I am or how kind I am or how many elderly ladies I walk across the street. It's not based on anything that I can do. Because I can't save myself. And so that's the idea of justification. A biblical justification is the idea that not only are you declared righteous, but then God blesses you, he walks with you through this life, he leads you and he guides you like a good father. And this idea is fundamental to our Christian faith. In fact, I believe that this idea is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion that this world has to offer. From every other belief system, every other thing that man could conjure up. This is what sets you apart this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. Sorry. You're not good enough. And neither am I. And it sounds almost insulting at first, but it's actually the most freeing truth that you will ever come to know because you can stop trying to earn God's grace. Now, I wish that I could say that this morning, every person who's come to a right right relationship with Jesus and understands he's the son of God who died for their sins and they found salvation in him isn't trying to earn it anymore, but... I think many of us in this room this morning are still trying to work for God's favor. We feel like when we fall short of the standard that God has put in place, that we have to somehow now rework our relationship with God. We have to work our way back. We gotta figure out a system to to make God okay with us again. 
And we treat God as if he's another human. Because that's how human relationships are, right? And I've, I think I've said this before from up here, but how many people would continue to be friends with somebody who constantly makes mistakes and, and hurts you? After a while, you're like, okay, this person and I, I don't think it's gonna work out, you know? I love him, but it's like every time I try, he just makes another mistake and he wrongs me. But that's not our God. I don't understand it, but that's the love that he has for his people, that every time you fall short, he is ready and willing to forgive. I remember about a year ago, uh, my wife and I, we were living, we, we have a, our own place now, but at the time we were living with someone and uh, they weren't home. And so the, a knock came at the front door and I looked through the little people. Those are like my favorite thing, you know, because you're like, I can see you, but you can't see me. And uh, then I can choose whether I want to answer the door or not, <laughs> you know. And I also found out, side note, if you buy a house, many of you probably already own a house, holy moly, everybody knows. Everyone knows. Discover card knows. Visa knows. Time Warner Cable knows. Uh, Spectrum knows. And they all come. ADT knows. In the first two weeks, I was just at the house. I took some time off work, and I was at the house doing projects. I couldn't get anything done. Because every 10 minutes, some other salesman is at my front door like, you know, you really need security on this busy street. You know, and they have their whole spiel. So it got to the point where, like, they'd walk up to the door, and I would just keep sawing. I had the, the ear protection on. I'd just pretend they weren't there. <laughs> you know. Excuse me, sir! You know, they're trying to compete with my chop saw. I'm not even cutting anything. I'm just running it. I didn't actually do that. That's terrible. <laughs> and so, what was I even talking about? I don't know. I was talking about chop saws. And, and so, we're at, we answer the door, and it's Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a, a man and his wife. And I was like, all right, sweet. You know, like, this is awesome. I love this. They didn't love it after a few minutes, but I was loving it. You know, my dad trained me well. You don't, you don't pass this opportunity up, okay? Bring them in for coffee. You can, they can come back. We're going to get these people saved, all right? And so they, <laughs> they knock on the door, and it just started with me. And so he starts, you know, telling me that we believe the same thing. And I was like, oh, okay. So we, we start talking and dialoguing, and the issue is always Jesus. And so I said, well, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And, you know, we, and then, the, oh, boy, the can of worms, right? So we start talking more, and... Anyways, at the end of the conversation that was, it was great. It was a good, it was a good conversation. They were really nice people, um, and it was, it was actually a really pleasant time, and it was a good, good theological debate, and, you know, we still pray for them, and uh, we pray that they'll randomly show up at our new house now, and, and they'll probably, oh, never mind, yeah, we'll, we'll leave, uh, <laughs> but uh, we pray that they would show up again, and uh, so, but this is the point, is that at the end of the conversation, I, I just looked at him and I, and I said, and his name was Paul, and I said, hey, Paul, can I ask you something? I said, why are you at my door this morning? Well, my friend's door at the time. And uh, I was blown away by how honest he was with me. He said, because I have to. And I, I said, well, what do you mean you have to? Like, you feel, you feel stirred 
by God and his love for you to, to be here because you love me or you're here because you have to be here? And he said, I, I have to be here this morning. This is my duty. I said, okay. Well, I would agree with that as a Christian. I would say that it's my duty to share the gospel too. But, but let me ask you this, and this is where the fundamental question lands. If you died right now of a massive heart attack, do you know where you would go? And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, I hope heaven. I hope. I hope heaven. And I looked at him and I said, do you know that I know I'm going to heaven? And he said, well, congratulations, you're a better man than me. And I was like, well, no, I'm not. That's the point, though. I know because Jesus, who was God and is God, died for me in my place and paid the ransom that I owed. And, you know, we, we ended the conversation, but I remember my wife, Natalie, and I, we, you know, I think we went and got coffee or something that morning. It was like a Saturday. And, you know, we just sat, and I remember talking about the interaction that we had and how depressing it was to know that those people are walking around hoping that they can do just enough to earn right standing with God. And it goes far beyond those who are in other religions because there are people, there are some of you this morning sitting in this room who are trying to earn favor with God and you will never earn favor with God through your works. You just won't. He already loves you. And sometimes in the church, we paint this picture like we're so, unlo- we're so lovable that God just couldn't help but love us. But that's not the case. We're the most unlovable thing ever. God loves you because he loves you. And I don't know why he loves me. I don't know why he loves you. We stink. But he loves us. It's not this idea of love and grace that God has because we're so lovable. It's because he's holy and he's righteous and he has this pure unconditional love, a type of love that we can't understand. And it is greatest displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no greater gift, no greater move of man than to lay down his life for another. And our God took our place at the cross. If you think that you cannot be saved this morning because you've made too many mistakes, you are wrong. If you think that you've done too many things and there's no way that you could be ever made right before a holy God, you are wrong because you can't earn it. It's a gift. Don't you hate your friends who every time you try to do something nice for them, they're like, let me give you some money. You're like, will you shut up? Let me buy you the coffee. I have friends like that. I love them to death and they will not let me bless them. As broke as I might be, dang it, let me buy you this coffee. And those type of friends are the worst. They never want to be blessed. They always want to buy you stuff. Now, sometimes when people want to buy me stuff, I'm like, sweet. I have no money. I will take it. But sometimes you're just trying to do something nice, and you're like, let me give you some money. And then, then now with modern technology, you can't get around it. Because if they try to hand you cash and you give it back, they'll just Venmo you. And then it's on your phone. And then it goes to your bank account and the deal's done. Unless you send it back. I one time had one with Pastor Matthew. We, we were out somewhere. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was like he wanted to pay and I didn't want to let him pay. I was being that friend. See? 
And no, no, I paid for him and he wouldn't accept it. That's what it was. Yeah. And he just kept Venmoing me back the money. We're at Yard House getting food for the happy hour thing because it's like half off entrees and we're both on full-time ministry. <laughs> so we're like, hey, half, half off on food, let's go, you know? And we love to eat, me and Matthew. So we can put away some food. And it was like we racked up 30 bucks or something, which at a happy hour is impressive, okay? And that doesn't sound like a lot, but <laughs> we got a lot of food. And so we just Venmoing each other back and forth. Like neither of us would accept that the other one was gonna pay the bill. And sometimes I think that's how we treat our relationship with God. We're like, no, 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 let me, let me work a little more. Let me, let, me just, let me just do this. Can I do that? What if I, well, if I do this, though, I'll clear my schedule and I'll do this, this, and this, and then, then I'll have favor. The problem with that system is that it's unending because you are going to mess up again in like 20 minutes when we're out of here. You're doing good right now because you don't have to talk. If you're me, I'm like, yeah, I'm chilling, dude. In church, I'm holy. And then I leave and I say something and my wife's like, what? And I'm like, I know. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Wives are good for that. <clears throat> and I mean that in, in a positive light, okay? Just calm down, jeez. I appreciate that my wife calls me out on stuff. Everybody was like, oh, he's in trouble. She's coming to second service, so... And we filmed this one, so. <laughs> Viewing obedience as necessity for salvation is actually against the gospel. Can I say that again? Biblically, viewing obedience to rules as a requirement for salvation nullifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can see that in Galatians and Colossians and more. Salvation is based wholly on God's unmerited favor and grace, not on the believer's performance. Jesus came to seek and save those who were holy. Nope. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost in their sin. Jesus hung out with tax collectors, prostitutes, you name it. That was his crowd, man. He had his brothers, his disciples, but he was not afraid to walk into a crowd of people that were utterly against the things he was teaching and love them and show them grace and guide them towards the truth of the gospel. And sometimes as a church, and I don't mean living truth, I mean the church, we miss that. And I pray that we would we would look at people the way that Christ looks at people. In Luke 19, many of you know this story. Turn to Luke 19 real quick. We'll go there for a second. Luke chapter 19. This is the story of Zacchaeus. I love this story. And uh, to kind of save some time, let's go to... Verse 5. Well, here, let's just read it. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho, and he made his way through the town. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector in the region. And he'd become very rich through cheating. And he tried to get a look at Jesus. I love this. But he was too short. 
to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Verse 5, when Jesus came, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus, and he called him by name and said, Zacchaeus. And he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Okay, so first of all, what is going on? If you're Zacchaeus, you know you're a little cheater. As Alistair Begg so graciously puts it, the little cheat was up the tree. (laughs) He had been ripping people off, taking advantage of the system that he was overseeing, And here comes Jesus. And I love this because Jesus is God. So Jesus knew Zacchaeus would be there. I love that. I would how you know like the coolest thing in basketball is when like somebody does a no-look pass. They're just like, and you're like, never knew. Wouldn't it have been so cool if Jesus was just like, Zacchaeus is up here? He's like, Zacchaeus, get down. Didn't even look. That would have been cool. I don't know why Jesus didn't do that. Maybe he did. I don't know. (laughs) But it does say he looked up, so. We'll take it. But Jesus knew he would be there. I believe that Jesus does this all the time throughout his ministry. He knows someone's going to be there, so he goes there. He seeks out people who are lost. That is the God that we serve this morning. I think of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus shows up at this well knowing full well (laughs) that she'll be there. And so Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. Oh, there's always grumblers. Chronic complainers, I call them. He has gone down to be a guest at a, what does he say? A notorious sinner, as if they're not sinners sitting there saying this. They grumbled. Oh my gosh, he's going to Zacchaeus' house. Doesn't he know we have five bedrooms and a lovely dining room and we're Jewish and we've been to synagogue, right? Jesus picked the little cheat. Let's go have dinner. And this is the best part of the story. It says, meanwhile, verse eight, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, catch this, please see this church. Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. Jesus did not give Zacchaeus a list of rules and say, you need to check off these boxes, and then I'll come back and see if you're good enough. Zacchaeus said, Lord, in the presence of the Savior, Jesus Christ, he saw his sin for what it was. He repented, and he was given salvation. That is the hope of Christianity this morning. It is not about doing certain things. It is not about earning favor with God. And some of you this morning are in this room, and you are working so hard. And you should not be working Because you have a loving father who has already given you forgiveness. And you keep trying to earn it. Some of you this morning battle real struggles like anxiety and depression. And you find yourself in this cycle where you feel like God loves you for a minute. 
and then you fade into the background and you distance yourself from fellowship, from time with God, from prayer, from his word. You distance yourself and silence yourself in worship because you feel like you are not worthy. But Jesus is screaming at us this morning through this text and saying, I have already declared you righteous. You don't have to earn it. Bring all of your burdens. Bring all of your baggage to me. Zacchaeus was given salvation because he simply saw the Savior, saw his sin for what it was, saw a need for a Savior. He called upon him, repented, and salvation was his. Did Zacchaeus go on to live a perfect life? No. But he was given salvation because he saw the Savior and he repented. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous given for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Turn back to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll pick it up in verse 17. And it says in 17, and Paul continues to give us some big ideas here, but suppose that we seek to be made right by God, uh, by God through faith in Christ. And we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. He says, would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system I've already torn down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements. This is the NLT. So that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live this earthly, in this earthly body, trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I think of the law here like this. It is impossible to earn favor with God through the law through our works, through our merit. We've established that this morning. Paul has made it abundantly clear in the text. So if it is impossible, Paul poses this question then to the, the person who might have you know, concern about what he's just said. So Paul says, so if we, would Christ be a minister of sin and basically set us up for failure if we could earn it through the law? And the idea is that it, he says, absolutely not. And it all, if there's any confusion on this passage, it all boils back down to this. It is impossible to earn it through the law. And that's what Paul is continuing to emphasize here. He says in 18, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system. I've been delivered from the law. The law is there to show me my need for a savior. You know, we have these light up speed signs now. Right, so they, they, if you're like me, they're always saying slow down, right? <laughs> a lot of honesty right here, okay? No, I've actually driven a lot slower. I got an older car with big tires, and so now I, don't, I can't go that fast. I need gas for the whole week, okay? And so the sign flashes at you and says, whoa, sinner, <laughs> right? The law is like the sign. It says, hey, but the sign doesn't save you. So back to my analogy, the sign doesn't make me slow down. It shows me I should slow down, but it does not make me slow down. 
I slow down when I finally surrender my desire to drive fast and burn fuel, and I slow down. And so the law in many ways is like that. It is there to show us our need for a savior, to show us that we can't do it. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't try to rebuild the old system. You don't need to. I think of my Jehovah's Witness friend who is trying still to earn it through his merit and what he's done. If the law played a part in my salvation, then what happens when I can't keep it? I would never find freedom. It would be impossible to be made right before God. And that is why Jesus' death on the cross is absolutely necessary. It says in the book of Hebrews, we're going through this with the young adults on Sunday nights in chapter 11, that it is only one way that we can please God, and it is through faith, right? Now, my iPad just died, and the rest of my notes were on there, so that's okay. They're on my phone, actually. I thought I charged it last night. It was one of those things. And so... There's this idea in the text, Paul is saying it's through faith. The author of Hebrews says it's through faith that we please God. There is no other way. Now, it says in verse 20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. The call on the life of a Christian is a life of cruciformity, conforming to the cross. Jesus says in the book of Matthew that if you follow me, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross. There's this idea that the life that we now live is in view of the cross, dying to self. But cruciformity in Jesus does not end in death. It ultimately and fundamentally ends in glorious resurrection for the believer. It is a call to die to self, to have ultimate life in Jesus Christ. And if you understand that this morning, and you have come to a place where you have found salvation in Jesus Christ, that is fundamental for you this morning. We must realize then that a gospel-driven life, please hear this, inevitably leads to a crucified life. A gospel-driven life inevitably leads to a crucified life. That means that I die to myself, I die to my own wants and desires, and I live for Jesus. To be crucified with Christ, I love this. This was in a commentary that I read this week. To be crucified with Christ does not mean that we stop living. It means that Christ lives in us. And we find true life through living a crucified life. There is freedom in surrender. There's all these oxymorons in the scriptures. If I told that to somebody who has no concept of the gospel, they would think I was nuts. Because in every worldly example, when you talk about you know, battles and war, uh, surrender doesn't usually mean freedom. You look at the Old Testament, when armies surrendered, it usually was not good for the army that had just surrendered. It meant that they would be taken into a new land. You can see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel's life 
Babylon takes over and they, they, they have to surrender to Babylon and, and then there they are. They're now slaves to Babylon in captivity. This single verse in Scripture, I don't think there is many other verses that more accurately describe what it is to live the Christian life. It is now Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the freedom that we have this morning. That truth sets you free this morning. Free from the baggage that you have carried around for however long. Paul says in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. It's even better if I die because he understands where he's going because he has assurance because of what Jesus has done. And that is your hope this morning, church. It's not a faith in some random message. It's faith in a God who loves you and gave himself up for you and keeps to his promises. He is sovereign, he is righteous, he is holy. You know, our world uses the the word faith a lot, right? How many people have you talked to who are not Christians and when there's something terrible that happens, they say, we just gotta have faith. We just gotta have faith. I believe that they mean well, but your faith is only as valuable as the thing in which it's placed. If I put my faith in my car and it breaks down tomorrow, that's not a very good faith. And it's 22 years old, so... There's a lot of variables there. But when I put my faith in a perfect God who is righteous and holy, that is a legitimate faith. That is a faith that will carry me through trials. That is a faith that will continue to persevere through the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows of this life. That is one of my favorite songs we have been doing lately, Highs and Lows. I absolutely love that song because I can resonate with it so much. Because some days I am like David in the Psalms. You turn the page and on one page David's like, I love you, God. Thank you. You are so great. I love you. Everything's great. And then you turn the page. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And then David's like, what happened? God is gone. Everything's done. I have no hope. And I'm like, yep, I do that. Thanks, Dave. That is my life sometimes. But my faith has to be built on something much greater than my emotions and what I feel. And I'm afraid that in many Christian circles today, that is what is being taught, what you feel. Your feelings are not the voice of God. God's voice is God's voice. And he speaks in different ways. And sometimes you will be stirred through your emotions. But if we go with every turn of our emotions, it's going to be a disaster We have to be steadfast. And this is really the question that I pose before the church this morning. Do these truths in the scripture, the idea that I cannot earn it, that I don't deserve it, but yet he gave himself away, that is the kind of love that our God has for us this morning. Do I allow that truth to determine how I live my life? I can know that truth But until I walk in it, it is meaningless. I have to trust in that this morning and walk in it. 
And that means that when I leave this building this morning, maybe for some of you, this is a fresh start this morning to say, I am going to stop trying to be good enough because I'm going to continue to fail. You will be stuck in this vicious cycle where you feel good, you're not good. You feel good, you're not good. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is built on a truth that stays constant through every up and down in this life. And your feelings and your emotions are valid, but they do not dictate who God is or where you stand in relationship with him. When we fail, do we look to these truths for hope? Or do we fade into the background? I think some of us have a terrible tendency to do that. When we make a mistake, we distance ourselves from the very God who's calling on us to come closer. And some of you this morning are carrying guilt from a decision that you made years ago. For some of you this morning, it might have been an abortion that you had, a previous marriage or relationship, mistakes that you made within a relationship. Drug abuse, addiction, pornography. There are weights and guilt that you're carrying this morning. And the call on our life as Christians is to lay those burdens at the feet of our Savior who has already given himself up for us and saved us. That is the type of faith that we have. It is not a, 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 some sort of random chance and hopefully we are good enough. If you've called on the name of Jesus this morning, salvation is yours. You've been saved. And we know that, you know, it's not open-ended in that sense that James talks about how good relationship with God calls for good works. But it is not your works that save you. Simply put, if I love my wife, I seek to do things that are good for her, not bad for her. On a greater scale, if I love Jesus... I will seek to do things that please him and not the opposite. But I have to understand that I'm going to fail. I heard Francis Chan speaking, and we can have the band come out. And he was talking about, you know, prayers after the service. And, you know, he, he said he spoke at a, a youth conference. But it was a, a youth conference... Well, it was, a, it was a parenting conference for people who had teenagers. It was something like that. I don't exactly remember the, the, the setting. But I know that this is what happened, is that Francis Chan had multiple people come up to him, and they said, can you pray for my son, Derek? He, he smokes a lot of weed, and I'd really prefer that he didn't do that, and I would really love him to just get rid of this, this addiction that he has. Or, you know, my son is living with his girlfriend, and I've told him a thousand times he shouldn't be living with his girlfriend, and they're just defying me. And, they're, and, and, and Francis Chan said... None of the requests were bad requests. It wasn't like I was not going to pray that Derek would stop smoking weed. But, and I love this. Francis Chan said, I suppose that a better prayer would be that Derek would love Jesus more. Because if Derek loves Jesus more, then he will not want to do things that are against the heart of God. If you want change in your life, know Jesus more. He will change you. He is the perfect partner to have in a relationship. 
and that you can look to him. He is the perfect example. He never stops loving you. It is not a conditional love. He will guide you in the right direction every time. And the closer you get to him, the more holy you will become. There's this idea in scripture that we are, are being made like God. That means it's a process of sanctification. That means that you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall short. And as we close with this song this morning, the bridge says, I may be weak, but your spirit is strong within me. My flesh may fail, but God, you never will. So give me faith to trust what you say, what we read this morning. I pray that when we sing these songs, we would pray them, that we would make it our prayer this morning as a church. As we sing right now, give me faith to trust what you say to know that you're good and your love is great and I'm broken inside, so God, I give you my life. That's the lyrics that we're about to sing this morning and I pray that we would not just sing them because we know them, but we would sing them to a God this morning who hears us, who is righteous and desires to do that very work within our heart. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship together.